Perhaps you remember the book or author that changed your relationship to reading, and because it did, it became your favorite book. Before this book, I was super afraid of reading. And my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Edrington, had us read this book. And this book kind of changed my literary life. And after reflecting on that, I'm like, okay, I'm not afraid anymore. And then it was at that point where I stopped kind of overthinking reading and I just did it. And I found it to be more enjoyable after this book, which is why I picked it for the podcast because this book is really like a turning point in my life. If you're a fan of plot, character development and imagery, if you need a bit of escape and are seeking that next intriguing page turner, or if you're like me and find joy and entertainment in old Victorian novels, this week's episode is for you. Today, suspense, romance, murder, and a bit of drama with Daphne du Maurier's 1938 novel, Rebecca. I'm Peyton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Leo Queen. He is an educator, activist, mentor, and philanthropist. He's a coach, but perhaps most importantly, he is a man of vision and integrity. Leo is also my very best friend in the world. He helps me pick up the pieces when life falls apart, celebrates my successes, and is always there for a good laugh and a good vent. He's just an exceptional human being. We recorded this conversation in August of 2020. A note for our listeners. This episode contains some plot spoilers. I want to know about your reading life, the history of your reading life, how you think about that. I really had to go really deep into my mental file cabinet to, to conjure up a memory about my reading life. Because when I initially thought about it, my initial thought was, well, you know, I didn't do much reading, but I realized over these past couple of weeks, the reason that I felt that way is because every bit of reading or not, maybe not every bit, but most of the reading that I did in my, uh, in my youth life was because it was assigned for class. I didn't do a lot of pleasure reading, I guess is the way to frame it. Okay. Um, because most of what I read was school-based reading. Um, and there was always a grade attached to it or mm-hmm. some type of marking, satisfactory, not satisfactory, mm-hmm. um, that type of deal. So that I never liked that reading. And then there, there was always uh, deadlines attached to that type of reading. And so... I thought about it on a deeper level and I actually still kind of deal with a certain type of trauma about literacy Oh my because I have never been a great standardized test taker at all. So I remember 
you know, coming up through elementary school and middle school, it got better in high school, but definitely elementary and middle school when I was really young, every time we would take these state standardized tests to move on to the next grade level, math, I'd be great. Excellent scores. Social studies, great. Science and reading and comprehension would always be my lowest. So that made me feel bad about myself. I internalized that. Um, yeah. And if I'm just being blunt about it, I really felt stupid mm-hmm. because I didn't understand why I was always scoring low on reading comprehension. The writing parts, I did pretty well on those. But when it came to comprehension, that was always my lowest mark. And it wasn't my lowest mark by, the, by a few percent, percentage points. It was my lowest mark by a lot. And that made me feel really bad about myself. And then when you're that young, everything is about your person. So it, it made me, it didn't make me feel like um, a good student. And I never understood it because I worked so hard at school. Um, you know, I was the nerdy kid. I made all A's and, and things like that. But when it came to those standardized tests, man, that really traumatized me. See, this is why I'm glad we didn't talk about this before today, because nobody thus far has talked about standardized testing and what it did to their person's relationship to Mm -hmm. reading. So what you're saying is getting these low marks on comprehension disrupted any reading. Reading became traumatic. It became something that was not for pleasure or for joy or anything it became a task and traumatizing yes very much so that's a good way to to put it it was reading for me was always task oriented it was never something that i chose to do because it was you know the kind of the mind i was in the mindset that well it doesn't matter if i read books because i'm going to be tested on it and i'm going to score low i'm going to score low on it anyway So it was never something that I actively chose to pursue on my own. So then I reflected more on that question and, you know, there, there are two sides to it. So yes, I didn't do a lot of, I didn't enjoy a lot of school-based reading, but I actually did a lot of reading. Mm -hmm. So that's, that goes back to the, the part where I said, you know, I had to really dig deep into my filing cabinet to, to think about something. And I actually did do a lot of reading. I read the newspaper from cover to cover religiously. I, I remember being excited that my mom finally got us a newspaper subscription. So we wow. get the newspaper every day. Uh-huh. Um, and it would be an activity that I did every day after school. Like it was part of my routine. I go to school, I'd come home, put my backpack down, change out of my school clothes. And the first thing that I would do is look for the newspaper. Hmm. And naturally, because I am a a big sports person, I, that's the first thing that I would do. So I would read the sports, the sports section uh, to see what had gone on. Um, Hmm you know, during the day or, you know, in, at last night's NBA finals game five or, or something like that. And it was, I would get mad at my older sister if she would read the newspaper before I did hmm. <laughs> because I wanted to be the first one in the house with the knowledge. So I, I read the newspaper 
religiously. I know that sounds foreign today in 2020. People are like, what's a newspaper? But um, I like the way that Mm -hmm. they they painted pictures um, of how, you know, such and such ran down the court and hit the game winning three. And obviously I didn't Mm. see it. I didn't see it, but that imagery, I, and as I would read it, I would picture it in my mind. Yeah. Um, and that was something that I really like got excited about. It made me feel that I was, uh, I was a part of that experience. Cause I, I vividly remember the first like big sports thing that I read in the newspaper was about the, I think it was 05, maybe 2006 when the Dallas Mavericks played the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And I read every day the newspaper would come in. I was like, okay, who won game two? So that means they're up to the zip. Who, who did this? Who did that? And uh, I remember that because the, the Miami Heat were down in the series and then they came back and won it. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and I, I, it's still like imprinted in my mind forever. Um, and then I, I read a lot about the Williams sisters and tennis tournaments and things like that. And then, you know, I would read other things about like what's going on in the city and things like that. Things that kids don't actually care about at that age. But, but I, I would always, I would always read, I would read that after, but I would always read my sports first. Now you said you're really into nonfiction. Do you think that comes from your newspaper reading as a young child? For sure. I really like nonfiction. Like I like real life accounts, biographies, um, things like that. Um, I like reading historical texts, autobiographies, things things that have things that allow me to relate to it. Mm-hmm. Um, like what? What are um, examples? So before the book that we're gonna discuss on this episode, um, you know, I had just finished reading Tanahasi Coates, The Water Dancer. Now that's still a fiction piece, but everything around mm-hmm. that piece. Um, is based on true events. Yeah. You know, he talks about Harriet Tubman in the book, uh, mm-hmm. they call her Moses. Um, so then, and that it was exciting for me to read that book because even though it was a fiction piece, yes, my technical definition, I still knew something about those real life accounts in which the book was mm-hmm. written about. Mm-hmm. Um, so that book was enjoyable for me to read and just truly understand that point in time in history a little bit more. Well, that book is, that book is sort of historical fiction mixed with magical realism. Yes. Right. So it's based on real people's experiences. Mm -hmm. I know that you read a lot of these, like these books, for example, by Tony Dungy or other like sports figures, right? Mm -hmm. So talk about that. Yeah, so I actually I've read every single Tony Dungy book, and I want to don't I don't know if I'm accurate on this. I think there are about five or six total. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read every single one. They're all on my bookshelf, and because for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a coach, and so I like reading those those types of things because it just helps gives me insight and uh, kind of informs the way I coach my athletes and things like that. So um, yeah, Tony Dungy is is one of those one of those coaches um who i've read i've read all of his books i've read some things by urban meyer 
um, just prompt because at one point I wanted to be a football coach and then I did it for a year and I was like, nope, not going to work. So, Mm -hmm. um, so now, now I coach track as you know, but, um, yeah, I've, I've, I've read a lot of just books about coaching leadership style books. Yeah. Now though, the, I'm, the more I read those leadership books that they're, I feel like they're kind of, uh, not as realistic sometimes as um, I would I would like them to be because it's like they paint this perfect picture about leadership, and as we both know, leadership is very messy. I can't even put it into words how terrified I was at the end of a school year when we had to take those standardized tests. Uh, Trauma. Before this book, I was super afraid. Oh, interesting. Of reading. And my 10th grade English teacher, Mr. Edrington, had us read this book. And this book kind of changed my literary life because it was the first book that I read and I didn't feel worried about it. I just read it and I was just super engaged in the plot and the storyline and everything. And yeah, this book like really did, really change everything for me. It really did make me feel, I felt empowered. I understood it. It wasn't, things weren't fuzzy. When we would be in class having conversations about the chapters, I would be one of the few people in the class answering the questions. And after reflecting on that, I'm like, okay, I'm not afraid anymore. And then it was at that point where I stopped kind of overthinking reading and I just did it. And I found it to be more enjoyable after this book, which is why I picked it for the podcast because this book is really like a turning point in my life. What was it like going back to the book for you now, all these years later? It was refreshing because I like, and still to this day, even after I read it the first time I was like, this is my, the most favorite book I've read like all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And even after reading it again for the podcast, I was like, okay, I remember why (laughs) this is my most favorite book of all time. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's crazy because I was in 10th grade, what, a decade ago. Mm Mm-hmm. Why do I even remember this book? So that just goes to show you how powerful it is. I never forgot. I never forgot this book. So why do you think that you haven't forgotten it? Do you think that it's because of the way that the book was taught? Do you think that it was because of the kind of reaction you had to the book? Or do you think that it was some other reason? It was the first book and it, just being honest here, it was one of the first books, if not the first book, that I read in schooling from cover to cover. Sure. I read this book in three days, and I would stay up until, you know, I get home from school and track practice and whatnot, and I would, if I had to, just to get through a section of the book that I needed to get through for the next day, I would stay up until one in the morning, two in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, having to wake up for five to get ready for school. But it was so important for me to get through the book because 
you know, we're going to get there, but it's so good. It's such a good book. And I just could not put it down. And I think that's why I never forgot it because it was the first text that I read thoroughly and enjoyed it. It was the first assigned text because I hated assigned things. And this was the first assigned text that I actually was like, okay, I can do this. It's so good. I read it in two days, as you know. It's, mm-hmm. And it's a long book. It's not a short book. It's mm-hmm. plot driven and suspenseful and mysterious and petty and drama filled. And uh-huh. it is so many things that we're going to get into. So what do you find so good about the book? Like, what did you find so good then? And what do you find so good now? I had, I thought I remember much more about the book, but I have forgotten so much of it. So in essence, it's almost like I was reading this book again for the first time. Of course. And uh, I, I just like the, because <laughs> the ending of the book, I have forgotten how it ended. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I finally got to the ending, it's not one of those deals, you know, you go to watch a movie and it's so obvious how the movie's going to end. I didn't get that feeling from this book. Mm-mm. Um, so Mm-mm. I think that's what I enjoyed the most about it was that no matter, and of course, as you're getting to the end of the book, you're like, okay, maybe this is what's going to happen. No, nah, maybe it's that. No, maybe it's this. And then I got to the book and it was, I hadn't even thought about that possible ending. So it just. Oh, me either. The last <laughs> paragraph is so shocking. Yeah. That, and it's perfect, right? The, the way the book ends to me is perfect. Because so, so petty. <laughs> not only petty, but a plot twist right at the end. Mm-hmm. Literally. And then the book is over. She's a master craft of storytelling is basically what I want to say. Because the way the book is constructed to me is that she does this wonderful thing where she makes you believe as a reader that like, this is the story and this is the way it's going to happen. And then she twists something. There are multiple storylines in the book. And by the time you get to the end, you, I wouldn't have predicted it, but I realized going back through, it's literally on the first page, Leo. The Mm -hmm. ending is on the first page, but I didn't realize it until I went back through. Yes. Oh no, it's not on the first page. I'm sorry. It's the first page of chapter two. Okay. But this is right at the beginning of the book. The narrator. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I think I know exactly what you're about to say, but go ahead. Well, read it because you have it highlighted. So I can see from your book that you. Okay. I believe there is a theory that men and women emerge finer and stronger after suffering. And that to advance in this or any world, we must endure or deal by fire. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's fascinating. Yeah. So I was like going back through and I was like reading that and I was like, see, the reason she's such a good writer is because she drops these hints in and they're all through the book where there are these foreshadows. You don't think any of anything of them. And then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap. She told us exactly what's going to happen on page five. Mm hmm. I'm glad you mentioned that 
actually, because I experienced the same thing when I was going back through the book looking for the quotes that I wanted to include. Yeah. And I was like, wait a minute. I, I went back and looked at everything that I highlighted and it made me realize mm-hmm. that I highlighted those things for a reason. And then you start connecting the dots as you go back through the book, like, wait, this connects with this. And she yep. said this. And I was like, wow, talented, talented writer. Her use of imagery and just, it, I, I still, nothing, I read it again and I, I am affirmed in my belief that this is the best book that I've ever read. What about the use of imagery? You've talked about this a lot. When you told me about this book, you said, pay attention to the imagery. Mm-hmm. She's very, very, very uh, detail-oriented. She mm-hmm. gives you every little detail about everything. Um, and I'm a little impatient, so that's not always my, that's not always my jam. I'm just like, okay, get to the point, get to the point. Um, because it didn't, I didn't really get into the book until about, you know, page 85 to 90, somewhere in that range where things started to take off. Um, because she spends, she spends so much of the early portion of the book telling you everything that you would possibly need to know. And now that I read the book all the way through, those 80 pages of what we would call fluff makes a lot more sense. Ad- admittedly, those first 80 pages of the book for me were a labor. And it kind of made me think to myself as I was reading through it, I was like, huh, am I sure this is my most favorite book <laughs> of all time? Because I had forgotten all that stuff. It's been so long. Well, you had told me that you thought the first 80 pages were like really hard to get through. I felt like the book hooked me from the jump. Mm -hmm. But um, I think the reason for that is I just love old Victorian literature. Like, I love it so much. Now, this book was written in 1938. And I guess when this book was published, people really criticized it because it was a throwback to these old Victorian novels. We had moved past that in literature by 1938, right? People were not really into this because it reads sort of like, the book reads like a, we would call it like a serial novel. Books like by Charles Dickens and Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Brontes and even Jane Austen, all of these people, uh, they weren't published originally as complete books like this. They were published in magazines. Which is, why the, which is why the chapters are short, right? So you might like subscribe to a magazine and get a chapter every other week or something. And it was a way for the magazines to sort of like keep their subscriptions up and novelists would write novels like that. That's not how this novel was written, but it reads like that. The chapters are kind of relatively short, you know, between 10 and 20 pages. Um, They're all a very event, like separate event driven. They're all separate event driven. It's a very particular form of writing and she seems to have mastered it. Well, I really want to talk about the narrator who goes unnamed in the book. 
She just mm-hmm. goes by the Mrs. new the winner, the new Mrs. De Winter, right? Yes. How do you conceptualize her as a character? Who do you think she is as a person? <clears throat> well, it's it was noted, you know, that she's very young. Yeah. Um, so I see her as this very youthful, early twenties, very imaginative. Mm, and that's imagin- a great word. And imaginative because of her youth, because she has to be imaginative because she hasn't experienced a lot of things. Mm. Definitely has an inferiority complex. Yes. In just in, in limbo with herself, very genuine, but she just doesn't know what she doesn't know. And all throughout the book, she, she, you know, she's very afraid to stand up for herself. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I shouldn't say all throughout the book because there, there was a point where she did finally stand up for herself and it was subtle, but I was like, hey, that's something. Oh, it's such a great, it's such a great moment um, when she does do that. But before we get to that, I felt like the book in some ways is a psychological study of what it would be like to replace, to be like the replacement wife or the replacement husband. And I just, I, I, you know, I thought that the author did a really good job of sort of like building that tension in because there are just these subtle moments where you get these little lines that you can tell that the person she is when she comes to Manderley is not the person who she really is. You know, she, she'll say something like, you know, this, uh, this, this was the behavior of someone who was neurotic not someone yeah. who's happy and carefree like I am. Yes. Or there would be this, like, this conversation between her and Frank where she says all this stuff about, oh, I feel like I'm not smart enough, I'm not intelligent enough, I'm not witty enough, I'm not beautiful enough, all this kind of stuff. And Frank says something like, you'd be surprised how far humility, kindness... And you know, like he uses these words to describe her. So you, you get this picture of her as actually like somebody who's kind, gentle, loving, all these beautiful characteristics that we might think of as a person, but she's constantly comparing herself to Rebecca. Yes. She has this obsession with Rebecca, mm-hmm. the, the first wife. And that is part of what creates all this suspense and drama in the book is that she's built up this kind of narrative structure around Rebecca. And so has everybody else, right? And she feels like she can't dare ask about about who this person was until she finally starts asking questions. Like on page 123, she she wouldn't even mention the name Rebecca, right? After she moved to Manderley and stuff. And on page 123, she finally says her name. I think she's talking with Frank. She says, I could not believe that I had said the name at last. I waited, wondering what would happen. I had said the name. I had said the word Rebecca aloud. It was a tremendous relief. 
It was as though I had taken a purge and rid myself of an intolerable pain. Rebecca, I had said it aloud. Mm -hmm. So Rebecca is like this force in the book, but we come to find out she's not. At all. (laughs) That. (laughs) No, what is she? A terrible person. (laughs) A terrible person. Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, after she finds out Rebecca is a terrible person, and after she finds out Maxim murdered Rebecca, does she herself as as the main character become a terrible person? Yeah. Why? Because... If I were in her shoes, I'm like, you're, you're a murderer. <laughs> I'm married to you. I now know that you are responsible for your first wife's death. Bye. <laughs> like, I'm not, you're gonna, you, you're gonna get mad and kill me one day. You know what I'm saying? So mm. I, I didn't, I didn't agree with how she chose to go about that. So why does she stay? Because, let me, I think it was in one of the quotes that I had sent you. Okay, good. You want, would you like me to read it? Yes, please. Okay. I love you more than anything in the world. There has never been anyone but you. You are my father and my brother and my son. All those things. And I thought that that was deep because man you she her whole life revolves around this man so the fact that he murdered his first wife i just found that like crazy that that was not even enough to shift her perception of him i actually felt like she started loving him more which is totally i think creepy but but she i feel like because if you remember before all of that, you know, once again, she's in her brain all the time. She's in her own head. And she's like, I just want to know what he's thinking. I just want, um, I want to know what's going on. And for her, that was like the biggest, deepest, darkest secret for her. And she interpreted that as love because she had all these questions about, does he love me? Mm-hmm. And the fact that he told her something of that magnitude, she was like, wow, he actually does. He actually does love me. But then as the reader, I'm like, right, uh, he, he might love you, but he's also a murderer. Like, we, can't, we can't forget that part. So I just, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Why do you think she stayed with him? Well, I think that there's like two things here, right? And I have a really complicated relationship to the narrator myself because I think all the way through like the first really two thirds of the book, I felt this kind of deep empathy for the narrator because I felt like what she was doing, not just what she was doing to herself, she was stuck in this psychological internalized monologue about not being good enough for Maxim, feeling socially inept. I mean, all of that class issue stuff that comes up, right? Oh, I spilled the sherry at lunch and I 
broke the Cupid statue and I don't know how to write a letter and my penmanship sucks and like all this kind of stuff that comes up. And so you feel like this empathy and you also feel this, this haunting is the only word I could think of, of this Rebecca character and how everyone's like, oh, she was so beautiful. She was so worldly. She gave the best party. She knew how to boat, you know, just this like, you know, woman Mm -hmm. that, supposedly Maxim had loved. So I felt such empathy for her. But then Maxim, you know, confesses to her that he murdered Rebecca. She becomes just as vindictive, just as terrible, doing really horrible things as Rebecca had done. In a different way, but they, I don't know, I just... I didn't feel by the end of the novel that I disliked the narrator for the choices she made, Mm -hmm. which is really complicated because she helped her, she helped her husband get away with murder. Literally. I mean, Oh, again, reality, you know, like these dramas that we watch Mm -hmm. this book. Oh, this just struck me. This book could be like the 1938 version of the TV show, how to get away with murder. For sure, for sure. Now we can shift to Mrs. Danvers because <laughs> a whole not- that that to me is a whole nother storyline within the storyline. You said, "Don't tell me you feel sorry for Mrs. Danvers, mm-hmm. right?" Yes. <laughs> yeah. You said, "Don't Mrs. Danvers is a terrible character. She's terrible." But what the book does is it makes you question these people's motives, and I don't know that I left the book. I was thinking about this again last night. Is Mrs. Danvers actually a terrible character? I honestly probably have to agree with you. Um, I have to agree with you on that point because I think that to use a word from earlier, Ms. Danvers is simply human. Now, I, I don't think I would have done everything <laughs> that Ms. Danvers did because some of that stuff she did was, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're about to talk about the, uh, the dress at the ball. Now that is some, that's on some other level. I don't think I would have done that, but I probably would have been standoffish, yeah. Well, again, Mrs. Danvers has this loyalty to Rebecca. I agree. You know, you, you have these scenes in the book where Mrs. Danvers is a total terrible person. Mm-hmm. The costume ball is the prime example. Like when, when that thing with the costume ball happened, I was like, oh, let me let okay just like really quick let me tell you something about those pages because mm-hmm. i wrote this down in like all caps because i didn't want to not say it mm-hmm. pages 213 to and 214 those two pages and the last page of course because the last page like shook me but pages 213 and 214 were the most powerful pages in the book for me mm. because that's when the main character is explaining 
that, you know, uh, she went down to the, <clears throat> went down to announce herself to everybody. She was so excited about the dress. Um, and Miss Danvers set her up. And so Maxim got upset. Everybody's looking at her crazy, like, why are you wearing the dress? And that's the same dress Rebecca wore <laughs> um, last year. And now Rebecca's not with us. So what, are you trying to be funny? Are you trying to be disrespectful? And just like completely crushed the main character's psyche. And so yes. those two pages in the book, the author's description of that, I physically felt like I was the main character in that moment. My heart started beating fast. I started sweating and I'm just sitting in my, in my apartment, my AC is on, everything's good. I'm drinking my water. And I felt, I felt it as a reader. Mm -hmm. That's why I love this book so much because I don't really, it's rare that that happens to me through a text. Mm -hmm. the, those, those two pages were the most powerful pages in the book for me. Cause I felt mm. like I was living that experience. Yeah. So there's another scene for me that I thought, this is chapter 14. I wrote at the, the top of the chapter that this is probably one of the most important chapters of the book. So Mrs. Danvers is showing the narrator, the new Mrs. De Winter, the West Wing, which is where Rebecca and Maxim used to live. And Mrs. Danvers has kept the bedroom in the exact same order as when Rebecca was alive. Mrs. Danvers is talking to the narrator on page 172. And she says, she's talking about Rebecca being this kind of like presence in the house, right? She says, it's not only in this room, it's in many rooms in the house, in the morning room, in the hall, even in the little flower room. I feel her everywhere. You do too, don't you? Do you think she can see us talking to one another now? Do you think the dead come back and watch the living? This is why I said, is Mrs. Danvers a bad character? Is she a terrible person? That's what the whole book, that, that to me is the question of the whole book for every character. Are these people good or are they bad? There's, there's these moral questions in the book. Because when, I, when you asked me the other day about how do I feel about Mrs. Danvers, I had just read that section of the book. And the reason I said I wasn't sure was because I could empathize with her and the pain that she felt about having lost this woman that she had cared for since she was a young child and how deeply traumatic it must be to then have another woman come in and take that person's place. Then she does all the terrible, nasty stuff that she does. And then by the end of the book, when you realize what her and Flavelle do on the last page. <laughs> That's, then it just comes back full circle. It comes back full circle. <laughs> and you go, wait, is that really the right thing to have done? So... Yeah. It's just all of the characters, Leo, are like that. The, the book is so great because every single character in the book, every single one, you make it, she paints them in this both and way as opposed to this either or way. That's why the ending of the book is so like, there should be a sequel because I want to know why you chose to do that, especially since you acted a whole completely different way in the interrogation room. 
I think that Mrs. Danvers, honestly, when she finds out during that last night that before they go off to London and stuff to, mm-hmm. to try to find the doctor, okay? I think that she has this kind of traumatic experience of realizing simultaneously that both uh, Maxim had murdered Rebecca. I don't think she actually knew that until that moment near the end of the book where they're standing in that like little library room or whatever. And so I think Mrs. Danvers realizes that, oh, Rebecca was actually murdered. She didn't just drown Mm -hmm. when she went out on the boat. And then also realizes that Rebecca was actually sick. She didn't know that Rebecca, like, so Rebecca had kept a secret from her. Yes. And so, so she felt, so there's this, there's this thing about like betrayal. Because she thought she knew everything about Rebecca. Right. Mm -hmm. So I left the book feeling like so conflicted about my relationship to her because I was like, I get it, girl. Like, I get it. And listen, the main character has nervous tics. She pets dogs. Miss Danvers burns houses down. Like, <laughs> Miss Danvers sets you up to wear the wrong dress. Miss <laughs> Danvers purposely chooses this food that you hate because that's the way that the old Mrs. De Winter would have done it. Right? Uh-huh. It's so good. <laughs> so, it's so good. Why did you why did you pull out this first quote? Oh, it was very early in the book and it was a tone setter and Can you read it? Yes. Happiness is not a possession to be prized. It is a quality of thought, a state of mind. Mm. And I I chose that one because you know, the main character is is very She's a dreamer, right? She had dreamed of Manderley. She had a postcard of Manderley when she was young. Um, She wondered what it would be like to be in that world. And she maybe thought that if she had ever got a taste of that, that would be happiness. And then she realized Mm. that her experience when she finally got it was more miserable than anything. So from the outside looking in, you think that all of these things that you see other people have and other people do, it's very easy to say, oh man, they must be living the life, right? And then you actually get that life and you're like, wait a minute, we have to do costume parties and we have to invite these people over to lunch all the time. In the book, they refer to it as like, we have to call on these people. Um, We have to it's more work than it is enjoyment. And so happiness isn't in things, it's in quality of life. This goes to another quote in a kind of indirect way that you pulled about even leading up to this costume ball. Mm -hmm. She has this imagination of what this costume ball is going to be like, right? For me, I was like, this is going to be a dreadful experience. I just knew (laughs) As I was reading up to it, I was like, something is going to happen. But also, I just feel like those types of things must be dreadful events. 
I, I, on, on that note though, you know, uh, that was one of the point, points in the book where I removed myself. I, I, uh, I removed myself from her and then I put myself in the crowd at the bottom of the staircase. And so when I was reading all that, I was like, I would have been looking at her like she was crazy too, because it was just so childish. It was so like, she, she got the drummer to announce her. And I'm like, oh, you, this is about to be bad. (laughs) I would have looked at her like, you crazy. And then they get into this, they don't even get into this fight. There's just this tension around her costume. And this is one of the quotes that you pulled out. Page Page 225. Do you want me to read it or are you going to read it? Yeah, yeah, read it. Um, We were like two performers in a play, but we were divided. We were not acting with one another. We had to endure it alone. We had to put up this show, this miserable sham performance for the sake of all these people I did not know and did not want to see again. Mm -hmm. So I want to say that was right after um, she went up and she changed and she came back down. Right. And... uh, her and Maxim were together the whole night, but they never, he never looked at her. He never spoke to her, but they still had to pretend like everything was fine. Right. You have any thoughts about that or? I was just thinking about how the narrator lives in these imagination scapes of what something is going to be like. And it turns out that in fact, it is all a performance. Right. And that's why I said your quote sort of matches to that a little bit, because even though the moment is about this tension around the fact that the narrator made this faux pas, thanks to Mrs. Danvers, about wearing the dress that Rebecca had worn at the last ball that where she was alive. And there's all this tension. This thing in your quote about you know, we had to endure it, we had to put up this show a sham performance for the sake of all these people. I mean, one thing you really know about Maxim is that he does not like any of this crap that they have to do as rich people, right? He's not here for like the balls, the entertainment. He doesn't like any of that crap. Mm -hmm. And so it really is a performance. That kind of ties to one of the other quotes that I pulled out about this obsession that the narrator has about the past, the present, and the future. The narrator is talking to Max. Uh, This is still way back at the beginning of their relationship when they're in Monte Carlo, and she's, I think they're driving. She says, if only there could be an invention that bottled up memory like scent, and it never faded, and it never got stale. And then when one wanted it, the bottle could be uncorked and it would be like living the moment all over again. And Max says a few pages later, I'm afraid I think rather differently from you. All memories are bitter and I prefer to ignore them. Something happened a year ago that altered my whole life and I want to forget every phase of my existence up to that time. Those days are finished. They are blotted out. I must begin living all over again. You know, you said that she's like, the narrator's kind of this imaginative person. But she's also this person who seems to want to like live in these fictitious worlds. She either wants to, it goes back to what you said about how she's imaginative or the dreamscape stuff that we talked about. She either wants to live in the past 
bottle up these memories and be able to uncork them. Or she wants to live in some future, but she doesn't necessarily always want to live in the present. Mm-hmm. Because I think every time she has a side thought, that's her way of escaping the present. Yes. And it's either going to the past or going to some uh, imaginative creation in her mind about what this thing would actually be like. Mm-hmm. I, I had a thought, right? So as I'm reading the book, I'm going through, I'm going through, I'm going through. And so much of the book is talking about Manderley, Manderley, mm. Manderley, the rooms, the things in the West room that are no longer in use, how everything is covered up. Um, things are left the way Rebecca last left them, right? So my thought, and I want to see how you interpret this, is my, my thought is that the author purposely did that because she was trying to illustrate that it's not as simple as it being the mansion. Like the mansion represents something in itself, I feel like, because if not, she wouldn't have kept bringing, bringing it up over and over and over again. So my thoughts about the West Wing is that the West Wing, West Wing represents something deeper than it just being a part of the house that they don't use anymore. For me, I read that as the author was illustrating how Manderley represents the mind. Hmm. Manderley represents your thoughts. And okay, interesting. There are parts of your life that you wish that you can just shut off and no longer use anymore, no longer think about. You can cover it up in white sheets and just completely forget that they exist. Yeah. But then there comes a time, and this time is totally random, you'll just be living your life and those things pop back up again. Um, because they, well, since Rebecca died, they no longer use the West Wing of the house because um, Maxim didn't want to remember Rebecca like that anymore. But then the main character goes snooping around and she finds their old bedroom in the West Wing. She gets lost or whatnot, stumbles into the West Wing, finds their, uh, their old bedroom and pretty much conjures up Rebecca again. So hmm. I, I looked at Manderley as being this symbol for, for the mind and how we sometimes want to forget certain things and then there's an event or something triggers us and it makes it come back to life again. And we're like, damn it, if I hadn't have gone, you know, if I hadn't gotten lost in that staircase, I would have never found the, the West Wing, but here we are. But that's an intriguing symbolic interpretation of Manderley. I, I had written down in my notes that I sent you that Manderley itself is a character in the book, mm -hmm. right? I, like I the, agree with that. The, the house, there's this kind of like perception of what the house is. And mm -hmm. it, it plays a part in the town or the county that it's located in. The balls happen there, you know, all this kind of stuff. It could be a thing about the mind I hadn't thought of it that way. You said like the West Wing represents these kind of like tumultuous, difficult things that happen in our lives. The narrator goes and snoops around. She, she finds it. Um, it's always there. So like maybe the West Wing is like the subconscious. And it's also, you know, the way that they position the house is set up as the West Wing faces the sea. 
and the sea is like, you know, it's loud and tumultuous and all this kind of stuff. And you think it has to do with the fact that Rebecca drowned. And then the east wing faces the rose garden, right? It's peaceful and all this kind of stuff. I also thought the west wing was just part of the way that the book built suspense and mystery because it was like, Oh, we don't use the West wing. Mm -hmm. So how do you think aside from the West wing, like how does the Manderley fit the other side of the brain? I think <clears throat> that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked it because it'll make me think about it. So, okay, well, so let's first, let's talk about the East Wing, I guess. On the East Wing is where their new quarters are. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think from my interpretation, everything that they use is now on the East Wing, right? The library, uh, the main character's office, uh, the dining, the dining area, all that stuff is on the West Wing or the East Wing, I mean. So I think it also... The East Wing represents present um, mm -hmm. reality right now. Mm -hmm. And as messy as the present may be, because like as messy as the present may be, that even though it's messy, it's still reality. Mm -hmm. The West Wing, um, I w that's comparable to the other places that she goes when she imagines things. I don't know if that make it makes sense in my brain. I don't know if I articulated that properly, but East Wing is right now. West Wing are the things that she imagines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I understand what you're saying because we've talked about how she's like this dreamscape type of person. Mm -hmm. It's just so, the book is so exceptional to me because I remember all the fine details of the book. Usually when I read a book, you know, I remember the, the more, you know, general things and like the little fine details. It's like, eh, I remember some of them, some of them I don't. Um, and this book, I remember everything. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, it's great storytelling. I mean, it's exactly why these types of books are so entertaining why people still read them, you know, I mean, well, now this book was published almost 100 years ago, but why do people still read these books? Because look, we've just spent almost three hours now talking mm -hmm. about this book. I had a thought, right? This book is 380 pages. I feel like this book, I don't know if this makes sense. This book is really 760 pages jammed into 380 mm -hmm. because there's so many other things we could talk about that's sure. how like intricate and like i don't know i just don't i can't even put into words like how great of an author <laughs> this person is for all of all of the listeners if you have not um read this book rebecca by daphne de Maurier, um i would definitely suggest reading it it's not anything like you've read before. I'm, I'm confident in saying that. I don't think it's like anything you've read before. I agree. Originally from Thibodeau, Louisiana, Leo earned two kinesiology degrees, 
a bachelor's from the University of Louisiana at Lafayette, and a master's from Mississippi State University. He currently works as an academic coach at Sam Houston State University. In addition to his role as a higher education practitioner, Leo serves as the head coach of Robles Speed Club, a youth track and field development and mentorship program in Montgomery County, Texas. Leo is passionate about philanthropic work and youth mentorship. You can follow Leo on Instagram at coachqueen underscore and follow the Robles Speed Club at Robles Speed. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, rhizoreader at gmail.com, or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play, where you can also listen to an unedited version of my conversation with Leo. We discuss Dumarié's use of nature and color imagery in the book, further unpack our relationship to the narrator, discuss the role of memory, and attempt to answer the question, who was Rebecca? You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episodes link of our website, www.risoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been the Rhizomatic Reader. Mm-hmm.